Jesus was in the garden. The circumstances of the evening, he was projecting what was to happen to him, even though the disciples did not understand. On that evening, one that he had poured so much into, one that he thought in many ways, or at least that person thought in many ways they understood what was going on, would betray him. His best friends, who he begged, basically, to stay awake, would not. In his deepest, darkest hours, deepest, darkest moment on the face of the earth in that, to that point, Jesus faces it. Yesterday, as we, many of us had the opportunity, or all of us had the opportunity, I guess, but many of us took advantage of that opportunity, and we're a part of the cross to the tomb as we gathered together as a group of us yesterday and walked in Canaan in the desert over on 40th Street and Shea, those who have been there. As I sat there and we walked through a very contemplative time there, and you get to the point where you look at Jesus in the garden, it's found in Matthew 26, found others, but Matthew 26 I'm going to read from. Verse 38, 39. He said to them, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little farther, he fell, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, My father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. Yet not as I will but as you will. And we see throughout Scripture that Jesus knew what it was like to carry a heavy weight. Obviously, in this passage of Scripture, and I'll talk just about it, about it just a little bit more, but Jesus says, my soul is sorrowful unto death. But Jesus knew what it meant to, to grieve. He knew what it meant with to Lazarus to grieve for others. He knew that he was going to raise Lazarus from the dead, but he grieved for those because they were, they were grieving. He felt heavy for them. We know what it's like when Jesus found that John the Baptist had, behe- had been beheaded. We know that weight. He, he went away by himself and he, and he mourned, if you will. But here Jesus is in a moment. He's asking those around him. They don't stand in the gap for him. But he said, my soul is sorrowful unto death. In other words, he's saying, my soul is in anguish. We know what it's like to lose a loved one. We know what it's like to have that depth of sorrow. To have a pain so intense that we can't imagine ever coming out of that feeling or ever coming out of that fog. Have you ever been there? Have you ever been at a point where you go, I I don't know if this is ever going to lift? What I'm in right now, I don't know if there's a way out. And it may be through a divorce or a a foreclosure or unemployment. 
a breaking of a relationship, but there's this uncertainty, and it may even be a failure in your life, and you just don't know how that's ever going to lift. Andy Stanley says, what do you do when there's nothing you can do? What do you do when you seem to have a problem that there is no solution? Your job, your marriage, your life is stuck. You're miles away from ideal with no good options. What do you do? Over the next many weeks, we're going to start a series called Shadows and Light. And the shadow is this. It is that something, and you could take it as it could be just about anything. It could be a stronghold. It could be a circumstance. It could be an obstacle that's in your life that ultimately looks larger than it really is. That it seems so overwhelming that there is no hope. That object. However, when the light of truth shines on that obstacle, it begins to be seen for what it is. And with that light comes hope, and with that light comes a path. Shadows. Shadow is that space that many have heard me say this. It's that shadow is that space when it's so that fog where you look down the road and all you see is more road. Ever been there? Where you look down the road and what circumstance you're in, you don't see an exit, you don't see a rest stop, you don't see anything. All you see is more road. Jeff Minion. Mannion says this, you're unable to go back and incapable of moving forward. You're frozen, you're paralyzed, you're capped, as we would say. And over the next many weeks, we're going to talk about some of these circumstances. Today, I'm going to talk to you about situational depression and anxiety, circumstantial depression and anxiety. We'll be talking about the tyranny of the urgent why we so often live in the urgent instead of dealing with the things that are most important in our life. We're dealing with those things right now that are right in front of us, and we consistently can't seem to get out of the habit of dealing with the things that are most important in life, but the tyranny of the urgent. Or you may be that person here today or who is dealing with this inadequacy. And it seems to be everywhere in your life. You just, you just seem like you can't get it done. And you don't see any way of getting off that road at any point. Could be shame and guilt. You avoid it sometimes. You don't think about it all the time. But man, if you think about it very long, all of a sudden comes this overwhelming sense of shame. It's overwhelming sense of guilt. If you think about it very long, you don't see any way to get out of it. And fear has so much to do with it. Fear is the tool of the enemy. 
Because the word says, again, God did not give us a spirit of fear, of timidity. He gave us a spirit of power, a spirit of love, a spirit of self-discipline, and self-control. But for many of us, we don't feel that. We are operating as Christians, even, even those who date today, I'm, I'm, I'm sure in this room, that are not would not claim to be as Christians, but you came today kind of see what was going on. And even if you are professing Christian today, you don't sense that power. You, you don't sense that love. You don't sense that self-discipline. The Word tells us we're to be people of joy. That we're to be people of praise. But for some reason, this doesn't feel very joyful or praiseworthy. Now, many of us know there are times of, 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 of grieving that we know there will be a point as we work through it, it will lift. We know that. From a death of someone so close to us, it was over time, it begins to lift. But I'm talking about, and we're talking about things that just doesn't seem like there's a way out of it. Nehemiah, as we talked about in the series we just finished called The Watchman. Nehemiah referred to it, or we referred to it in that series, as the exposed places. Whatever your exposed place is, whatever that place is that the enemy knows is your weak point, that's the place he's going to attack you. That's the place he's going to come in with the things we're talking about. And there are often places we just think there's nothing anybody can even do about it. So we just live with it. Let me say up front, before I get into my notes on this, that I have done considerable research on the whole idea of situational. I realize there's clinical, and I'll talk about that in a second, and depression and mental illness. I realize that. But I want you to realize I've done as much research that I feel comfortable with to tell you today, I, haven't, I don't have a doctorate in anything. <laughs> I don't have an honorary doctorate in anything. So I'm not here to tell you today that I've got all this figured out, that I'm on this journey with you. That I'm here today, though, to hope to give you some hope because it's a journey I think I walk with you. I don't just walk from over here yelling back at you. I believe I'm in the ditch with you trying to walk this out. I do believe, though, I've paid attention in life. I do believe I have, my education, many times said, where did you get your education? I said, life. I paid attention. I've taken really good notes. And I believe, as does the Church of the Nazarene, that in biblical doctrine of divine healing, I believe we should pray over people. I believe that God can heal people in a moment. I believe that with all my heart. I've seen it happen. I believe God can. I believe he's done it in my own life. He's delivered me in a moment. But I also want to make sure you understand we also believe that God uses other means. He uses other people. He uses medical science to help us work through that also. And I know on any straight road there are ditches on both sides, though, who would say that divine healing is nothing. It's some of the past and it no longer works. And some would say if you'd only just have enough faith, you could get, to, get over this thing. There's ditches on both sides. No question about that. We don't want to be in the ditches. Okay? We, we want to be on the road. 
What I am convinced of is that there are people who walk in this room every Sunday. They walk in alone, but they may be with their family. They walk in lonely, and they appreciate the free coffee. They appreciate the free donuts. They appreciate the handshakes and the hugs, but they need to go deeper, but they don't feel that this is a place they can go any deeper. They don't have the connections. They don't have the koinonia that Scripture talks about. And that's the reason why I encourage you so much to be here on a consistent basis being part of this community because when you begin to link yourselves across the room with people, it begins to change things. It just begins to change things. When this is just a checkbox that you do on occasion, I just don't think you're taking serious enough what the community really is all about. I just don't. There needs to be something that happens in here that you can't do online and you can't do anywhere else. There needs to be something that happens in this room because of what's happening in your life that cannot be replicated anywhere else. It's called kononia. When God's people come together for the right reasons. I just think the church needs to create this environment where we encourage people to go soul deep. And I've said this to you, and it's not in my notes, so I'm about to get myself in trouble because you know how I get off on little mini-sermons. But I eventually get back. John Eldridge says, and I think I may have mentioned the last few weeks, but it's in our notes for our uncommon group, but it is this. He said, I don't let a man close to me that hasn't dealt with his own wounds. I don't let a man close to me who doesn't deal with his own brokenness and his own wounds and begins to heal them because at 2 o'clock in the morning, I don't need a poser. At 2 o'clock in the morning, I need a man and a woman. I need a man who knows what it's like to go soul deep. That's what I need. I don't need any posers when I'm in that condition. That's the kind of church I believe we're called to be. That's the reason why we value here community. But we value it connected to transformation. We value it connected to mercy because they all, one without the other doesn't work. Transformation without community and mercy is not transformation. Mercy without community and transformation isn't mercy. Community without mercy and transformation doesn't work. It's all of them. They all got to be there. They all got to be a part of it. If you believe you can do transformation alone, I think you need to go back and reread Scripture. <laughs> and again, before I get myself in really bad trouble, <laughs> don't hear what I'm not saying this morning. If you believe that you need, or someone else in your life needs, medical advice and treatment for mental physical, and emotional concerns, then by all means, make the phone call. By all means, do the research. By all means, seek the help you need. Please do not hear what I'm not saying. I believe that's part of the whole package. But what I want to address this morning is more situational, circumstantial depression, and circumstantial and situational anxiety.
It's a place where life's certain circumstances, unfortunate circumstances many times, but sometimes I believe there are circumstances that God has allowed to come into your life, by the way. This is what we don't want to hear sometimes. We don't want to hear that God allows circumstances to come into our lives to move us forward. It makes us feel uncomfortable that God would allow that. But it's that place where if we work through it and we depend on God's power, the self-discipline, it only comes through the power of the Spirit and willing to be held accountable, there may be victory for some of you. There may be freedom for some of you. It is for freedom's sake that Christ came. That we would no longer be slaves. Folks, that's why he came. He didn't come to condemn the world. He came to save the world. He didn't come to put us in bondage. He came to set us free. That's why he came. And if you're here this morning and you're still operating in this bondage and this slavery to fear and anxiety and depression, again, outside of what you may need to get other help, I agree with that. I think it's legitimate. But also I think there's some other circumstances that we really need to address inside the church. A shadow. It looks larger than it really is. It's large. It's there. For something to cast a shadow means it's actually there. I'm not saying it's not there. What if I told you today that there are times I feel very lonely? As a lead pastor, I've probably felt lonelier than I ever have in my life, to be honest with you, besides before I was as a Christian. What if I told you today that I deal with bouts of depression and bouts of anxiety? Because I do. But what would you think of me, though? If I tell you that today, which I am, that I admit that, do you think of me as weaker, especially because I'm a man? Somehow, some way, you're just a little bit weaker because you deal with that. My family history has it. My dad, World War II veteran, battlefield, battlefield medic, he dealt with PTSD, even though they didn't call it that. He dealt with it for almost all the time I knew him. They just didn't call it that. He had many, multiple nervous breakdowns, almost died from depression in 1984. Siblings who have dealt with deep, deep bouts of depression. Children who have dealt with it and deal with it. Was able to watch very closely the postpartum blues up close. So it's not like I don't just come into you today and just go, well, you've read it in some books and you looked it up. Yeah, I did do that too. I think you've got to do your research. But I want to tell you today, I believe there's hope on all fronts. There's hope on all fronts. There just is. I 
I could throw a lot of stats up here on the screen, and I even thought about that today. I could throw a lot of stats up here. But one of the, and, and you could take it, look at it, but for the most part, a lot of times when you throw a lot of stats, people become indifferent to it because it kind of overwhelms their mind. Not everybody, but a lot of people just start looking at a lot of stuff and go, okay, I have to shut it off because I can't make sense of it. But let me say this to you. One of the things that just, as I do my, did my research, one of the things you realize real quick is the United States of America is one of the most depressed countries in the world. One of the most depressed countries, societies in the world, India and China, usually stay ahead of us on the other ones. We take in 90, we've got 5% of the world's population, we take in 90% of all painkillers. NBC report that I read not too long ago says that our young moms are stressed out. Maybe more than ever, and they're turning to prescription meds and alcohol are the two main ones. I know for me personally, alcohol is more involved in ministry than at any time I've ever been involved in ministry. It's just so prominent anymore in almost everybody, it seems like. It's not everybody, but it sure seems like it. We're one of the most obese countries in the world. Simon Sinek says in this article that I gave you a few months ago about millennials, those who were born in 1984 to about 2000. I think we may have it up on the screen here. I'll read this to you. And so millennials are wonderful, idealistic, hardworking, smart kids who just graduated school or in the entry-level jobs. And when asked, how's it going, they say, I think I'm going to quit. And, and we're like, why? And they say, I'm not making an impact, to which we say, you've only been there eight months. Okay. <laughs> it's kind of funny. Uh, it's as if they're standing at the foot of a mountain and they have this abstract concept called impact that they want to have on the world, which is the summit. What they don't see is the mountain. I don't care if you go up the mountain quickly or slowly, but there's still a mountain. And so, and, and so what this young generation needs to learn is patience. That some things really, really matter, things that really, really matter, like our love, our job fulfillment, joy, love of life, self-confidence, a skill set, any of these things, all of these things take time. Sometimes you can expedite pieces of it, but the overall journey is arduous and long and difficult. And if you don't ask for help and learn that skill set, you will fall off the mountain. Or the worst-case scenario, we're seeing an increase in suicide rates in this generation. We're seeing an increase in accidental deaths due to drug overdoses. We're seeing more and more kids drop out of school or take a leave of absence due to depression. Unheard of. This is really bad. John Maxwell says everything, John Maxwell, you've heard me say, everything in life worthwhile is uphill. Everything in life worthwhile is uphill. And Maxwell goes on to say, most of us have uphill hopes and dreams, we have downhill habits. That's just not millennials, folks. That's across the board. 
November Time Magazine did a, a study on adolescence. And it's pretty unbelievable that the, the concerns that are going on in our adolescence today. If you have an adolescent, you've probably dealt with this already. And these are Gen Z's. These were born after 9-11. I'm just going to read this. I don't have it up there, but just you can look at that. It said there are, the Gen Z's, are, they, they are the post-9-11 generation raised in an era, era of economic and national insecurity. They've never known a time when terrorism and school shootings were the, weren't the norm. They grew up watching their parents weather a severe recession, and perhaps most important, they hit puberty at a time when technology and social media were transforming society. If you want to create an environment to churn out really angsty people, we've done it. It goes on to say, Janice Whitlock goes on to say, is it in my dozens of conversations with teens, parents, clinicians, and school counselors across the country, there is a pervasive sense that being a teenager today is a dramatic, is a draining full-time job that includes doing schoolwork, managing a social media identity, and fretting about career, climate change, sexism, racism, you name it. This is what I, every fight or slight is documented online for hours or days after the incident. It's exhausting. And this young lady goes on to say, we're the first generation that cannot escape our problem at all. We're getting this constant pressure from our phones, from our relationships, from the way things are today. There is no escape from it. And you've heard me talk about being bullied in school growing up as a kid. In seventh and eighth grade, man, what would that have been like today? I don't know if I'd have made it. Honestly, I don't know if I would have survived being 13 and 14 years old if I'd had to done it today where it was on social media and it was being talked about in the way that it is. I don't know. And what's interesting is young adolescent girls are more likely to do self-harm where they're cutting. I never even heard of cutting. I just honestly, I've never even imagined cutting and this generation, millennials being the ones that kind of started it, cutting. I mean, Jan and I have talked about it. We never knew of anybody that ever cut. And they're hiding it. It's part of afflicting pain. And they have theories of why this generation is doing it versus the other ones. And I won't go into that. I'm not sure they're right, but they've got some good theories on it. Young girls are more likely at adolescence to harm themselves and maybe even try to commit suicide. What's interesting is when you flip it on the other side, uh, when you get older in life, it's almost it, it's 80%, I think it is. No, 70% of all suicides as we get older are by men. 80% of those are white men after middle age. So what happens in all those years? What happens from an adolescent young girl who is more likely to do that to a grown man in his 50s, white, more likely to do it, by far. There's hope. But what I want to tell you today is, if we think 
as a church and a church community that we can bury our heads and just think it will go away someday while the world crashes in around us. It goes back to what I said to you a couple of weeks ago. When someday your child may look at you and say, Mom, Dad, how could you stay so quiet? It was on your watch. It was on your watch. Not somebody else's. It was on your watch, man. How did you stay quiet? How did you not figure out a way to get in the community? How did you not figure out a way to integrate your schools? How did you not figure that out? Were you too busy building your own kingdom? We're in a culture today, we'd rather just get a prescription than do what we're supposed to do many times. Just give me a prescription where I don't have to do what I should be doing. Again, disclaimer, if you need a prescription, you go do it. But I'm telling you right now, I believe with all my heart, we're opting out for that so many times. When there are things going on in our life that God wants to deal with, just get a prescription. When somebody gives us a plan, you should eat different, you should exercise more, you should do these things, whatever that is, just give me a prescription. I think we're overprescribed in so many ways. You know, we complain about the physicians and we complain about the pharmaceutical companies in so many of these areas. But I believe in so many things. This is not a physician issue. It's not a drug company issue. It's a you issue. It's a me issue. Steve Furtick says, I cannot ask God to to protect me from that which I keep running to. I cannot ask God to protect me from that which I keep running to. And if we're not careful, it allows us to have undisciplined behaviors victimization, lack of responsibility, rebellion. Sometimes I think we're over-described. We're over-prescribed and we're over-described. We allow a diagnosis or a circumstance to determine the course of who we are. Does that make sense? We somehow another go, well, that makes me a victim then, Right? Because you've described me as that. And I know in our culture today, we have to be vigilant in making sure that the things that are challenges in our culture, autism and cancer and ADHD and depression... 
This disability describes what a person has, but it not, does not describe who a person is. There are people first. There are diagnosis second. And I don't even know, in that sense, the diagnosis should ever define them. Ever. And I do believe this. Sometimes God brings things into our life that makes us make decisions. We won't do it on our own. It's not comfortable. It's not fun. Four years ago or so, almost five years ago, I was going through a time of, of lethargic fog. Not depression, not anxiety, just lethargic. And a good friend of mine who's a doctor, and I still, he's still my doctor. It's not that anything's changed. He asked me, he said, Curtis, would you want to consider taking testosterone shots? I said, well, I, I, I would consider that. Jan and I talked about it and thought, well, okay. Last August, I'd never dealt with anxiety at the level I'd dealt with it. Last summer, last August, found a lump under my breast. As a man, that's kind of an odd feeling to admit that in public, and it's also odd to think that you now are going to have to go to a woman's center and get a mammogram. I've had two. I've had one mammogram and two ultrasounds. And I was diagnosed with gynecomastia. I got on Google, we went to work. (laughs) Because for me, what had happened was, nobody told me, said, Kurt, if you'd lose some weight, you might start doing this. Kurt, if you realize, if you you get six to seven to eight hours sleep a night, your testosterone level raises. Nobody told me that. Nobody told me you stay hydrated, it raises. Nobody got into that kind of stuff with me. Nobody ever told me. Just said, take this shot, do this, drive all the way to Chandler twice a month, get this shot in your rear end, switch sides every now and then. Nobody told me. Nobody told me. Man, there's a way out of this, possibly naturally. But no, I had to end up at a, at a clinic in Glendale with all the women there getting a mammogram. And in the middle of that, I'm going, you know what? There may be another option to this. Sometimes God allows circumstances to come into your life and make you make a decision you wouldn't make on your own. That's happening to some of you right now. God's bringing circumstances. He's bringing people. He's trying to change it. You won't do it. Give me another shot. Give me another pill. I eat two Brazil nuts every morning, don't I, Jan? I take a cold bath every morning. Every morning. Almost, oh, I say every morning. Almost every morning. Five to seven minutes. I feel better than I've ever felt in my life. I shouldn't say ever. 25 maybe I felt better. I don't know. In the last decade, I feel better than I have felt. And I don't know how long. But I'm telling you, I figured out I've got to get to bed earlier. I've got to be consistent. If I'm going to want the spirit of Caleb, if I want to be at 85 going, give me my mountain. Give me my mountain. I've got the same energy as I did at 45 when you promised me my mountain. I want my mountain. Then I've got to figure out a way to get there, and I can't be cheating. I can't be dependent on somebody else to figure this out for me. 
For some of you, right now, your anxiety is partly because of dehydration, I'm going to guess. 50% of Americans are dehydrated. Dehydration in itself doesn't, the best I can understand, doesn't cause anxiety. But if you have anxiety already, it can fly it off the chart. Because 85% of your brain is water. Some of you may be a little higher. I don't know. (laughs) Just saying, I know some of you. (laughs) We haven't fun yet. Oh, thank you, Jeff. That's the reason why we're teaching an uncommon how the body, soul, and spirit come together. If you think what you're going through through your anxiety, it could be totally just a mental, lack of a better way, a mind thing, but there's a good guess it has to do with all of it. It has to do with your spirit, where your spirit is. You're wrestling with something. In the depths of who you are, and you know it. It could be physically. You're, you're not eating the way you should. You're not getting the right sleep. You're not getting the right amount of water. You say, well, Kurt, that's not, that's not scriptural. Oh, yeah, it is. Love the Lord our God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love the Lord our God with our body and our soul and our spirit. I think I can find that in there. How about you? That means I've got to be doing my best. And if I want, that's what I told somebody, I think I told the other folks the other day, I said, one of the advantages of not having money put away for retirement is you never think about retirement. <laughs> that's one advantage I've got. I just don't think about it. <laughs> that means I better be on top, top shelf to be able to do what God's called me to do. I hope at 85 I'm still going to give me my mountain. And not just any mountain. Give me the mountain where the giants were, where we look like grasshoppers next to them. I want that mountain. That's the guys I'm taking out. That's exactly what Caleb did. My sacred pathway is critical. If you don't know what that is, I'll be teaching in a couple of weeks in Uncommon. It changed my life. My sacred pathway, knowing my sacred pathway changed exactly how I worked through a lot of these dark moments. Knowing my spiritual gifts, that God has a plan for me and he called me specifically. He told me, said, Kurt, you have this gift and this gift, get to work. I now have a, pro- I now have a, a, a problem, yeah, I have a problem. Now I have a, a challenge on my hand. I have purpose and meaning. God knew me in my mother's womb. He called me out. He didn't call but just a bunch of us. He called me specifically. So now I begin to operate in what I've been called to do. Now I have meaning and purpose. So now my head's up a lot instead of always down. Changes everything. Changes everything. Some of you are on mental overload. Our brains were not created for nonstop stimulation. It was, never was. It never was designed for nonstop information-driven things to keep piling in your head. You think we've got problems right now. Wait till these teenagers who are now growing up are going to become adults. We've got to find ways to offload. We've got to find ways to shut down. We've got to find ways to get away from it. We've got to find ways. 
We were never designed to have that stimulation all the time. And it would depress you. That alone in itself can be a depressor. That's the reason why I think this generation is having such an issue. It's not just the fact of, and here's the scary part about this day and age, that if you have self-harm tendencies, especially if you're young, you can go to find dark places on the Internet where you can be reinforced in that and almost romanticized. And it's scary. That's the world we live in. Now, we can either decide that somehow or another 1980 is going to come back. That world no longer exists. And it's never coming back. It's not coming back. Can I tell you right now, it's not coming back? That's not a prophetic word today that I came up with. It's not coming back. And as we as parents, are we going to sit on the sidelines and let our kids figure this out on their own? Oh, no, 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 we won't do that. We'll just get locked in with them and be as neck deep in it with them. We'll be just as distracted as they are. Why don't we just do that? That's the way to deal with it. We'll just bury our heads. We'll never leave work where work is and should stay. Jesus came up with the solution. He consecrated himself. He laid himself before God and said, not my will, back to that verse, my, my soul is sorrowful unto death. But in a moment, in a word, but not my will, but your will. If God told you right now, and you read this book, and you read in here, and it said, don't do this or don't do that. If the Holy Spirit spoke to you and said, don't do this, don't do that, go do that, would you do it? Because I'm going to tell you right now, until you're willing to do that, consecrated life has not happened. It just hasn't. But what I am excited about to tell you today is, my past does not define me. My past does not paralyze me. My past actually motivates me. My past actually is part of my fuel that drives me. My past is part of when I filter through the Holy Spirit and I filter through my meaning and purpose in life. When I do that, it motivates me. That's different than allowing that, that past and that everything else to come outside your meaning and purpose because then it becomes bondage. But when you can take that past, and many of you know 10 years away from God, 10 years of, of messed up living, I use that as a motivator, not as a paralyzer. <laughs> and that same promise is for you. You are a child of God. I stand in that today. And what I love about that passage, I put in the passage in that song, he said, you split the sea, so I walked right through it. What I love about it is he let, he let Moses and them stand on the sidelines as he did that miracle. That's one step of faith. But guess what he did to Joshua? He said, Joshua, I'm not splitting the water anymore when you come into the land of Canaan. You've got to put your foot in. So God is continuously increasing our faith. You do not get to stand on the sidelines every time. Sometimes you just got to step in and say, God, I don't know what's going to happen, but I'm putting my foot in the water and let you split it then. as soon as they got their feet out of the water, boom, it's back together. First day of Lent, our first Sunday of Lent. Won't you stand with me? We'll close. First Sunday of Lent, of Lent, in this Lenten season, 
Those in the uncommon will be challenged today to step back and go, what am I willing to begin to examine, begin to step back from, begin to look at? To say, God, this is on the altar. It's all on the altar. But what I loved about yesterday is I walked the little gravel trail through Canaan in the desert is the ability to remember, the ability to look at every station and reflect back going, God, if you never, Christ, if you never, ever, ever, ever do another thing for me, this is enough. If in the future I don't even see you speaking to me again or moving on my life or stirring me, what you've done up to this point, it is enough. And I heard Bill Hybels had a chance to be with Bill Hybels this week and Henry Cloud and those guys in California. But I love what Bill Hybels said about bringing your offering. And he was talking financial everything. But he was talking about Malachi. And it just struck me, Lord, I do not want to bring a blemished offering. I do not want to look around and the only sheep that I have was one with a broken leg and about to die anyway. That's the one I'm bringing. No, I'm bringing my best. I'm bringing my best to the table. I'm bringing it every time. The best I know to her, whether it's preaching, whether it's the music, whatever we're doing here on Sunday, every day to get up. Lord, I want to bring my best. I don't want to bring any blemished offering. Because what does God tell him? What does he use to tell Malachi to tell him? He said, keep it. I don't want it. Just keep it. Until you can reach the point where you can bring that pure offering that is so pure that that's the one thing that you prize the most when you can bring that. When you can bring that. If he never did anything for you again, he's done enough for you to live that way. Oh, we know we won't be perfect. We know we won't have it all figured out. We're learning day by day. Yesterday, as I told Jan, was a very heavy day for me, almost like a depressing day for me. But I kept pushing through it. And today's been awesome already. I just ask as you come now as we transition into communion, I'm going to ask one, I'm going to ask if we can get some help on some of the communion cups. Those who can't walk down front, we've got the, the smaller ones that you can help. If you just raise your hand, if you can't walk down here this morning, because we do communion by coming by. You'll come down the aisles here and your outside aisles and you'll go back and return to your seat down the middle. But uh, make sure that that's, that's it. Like I said, we want to make sure if you physically can't make it down here that you get to participate this morning. We do it by dipping the bread in the cup, partaking of it right here. Or you can take it to your seat, partake of it, however you feel led to do that. But Jesus on the night is betrayed. He set the example for us around the community table, the communion table, the juice and the bread. And he did that still knowing he was going to the garden. And in that moment, his darkest hour up to that point was in front of him. But he went to the cross, he's been resurrected. And by that, his stripes, we are healed. By that, we can be called children of God. 
By that, we can know that we're no longer condemned, but we are set free when we come and, and, and embrace Him. That's what this is about. I pray today that you'll come as you feel led as we pray. Father, thank you for today. Thank you for this time. Thank you for your word. But Jesus, we thank you today that you know exactly what we're going through. You know what it's like to carry heaviness. And Lord, I pray around this room as you begin to help each one of us process today what we would need to do, whether we need to seek help outside of the church. But Lord, I pray that they would seek those who believe in you and are led by your spirit and to help. Lord, I pray today for those who have just given excuses for a long time because it's just easier. I pray, Lord, that you would help them today as your spirit stirs in them at whatever it needs to be. Lord, begin me. Thank you for this time. We want to be a church today as we come together as a body right now as we enjoy this together. We're not only people that live by faith and known by love. We want to be a voice of hope to a world around us. But we love you today. We thank you for this. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Please come as you're led this morning.